When was it you asked me to do this? Maybe two days ago. Yeah, okay. So maybe three. I'm not saying that to blame him. I'm doing it to make to make to make an excuse for myself. Um, I have I didn't have much time to try to put something specifically together for this. I um, your pastor asked me for uh, if there's something I'd like to do in this form, and I sent him a few ideas, and he chose this one. Uh, so it, 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 it's not as if I just started thinking about this idea a couple days ago, but um, it's something I've been thinking about for quite some time, and I've done, I have done some writing related to it. But what I've put together, I put together pretty quickly. So I'm looking at this in some ways as more as kind of I'm kind of reflecting out loud, and I'd be happy. I will. Uh, we'll see how it goes. I hope there'll be a little bit of time. I can hear what you're thinking and. Um, I'd be happy to learn from you as well as for me to try to answer some questions that might uh, arise. Uh, why talk about religious liberty? I mean, in a sense, in a sense we're, we're Americans. We just kind of take this for granted. This is, um, this is who we are. Um, but I think there are some good reasons for us not to take religious liberty for granted or not just assume that we all know what religious liberty is. And I think there are some, some reasons for that. One reason not to just take it for granted, is that through most of church history, most Christians have not lived under political arrangements like ours. And in fact, I think it's fair to say that most theologians would not have chosen political arrangements like ours if they could have constructed the ideal civil society. Most Christian theologians through history we're not proponents of freedom of religion the way we think of it in the First Amendment sense. Uh, and that should at least give us some pause, at least think about, you know, why, why might that be? Uh, uh, are, there, are there good reasons that we disagree with so many of our great theological forebears about, about this, this issue? I think there are good reasons why we would disagree. But these earlier theologians weren't stupid. Um, they they didn't think that you should you could force anyone's conscience. Uh, they didn't think people should act against conscience per se, but they did think that the state had an obligation to support the true church. At least I'm talking about many of them. There are very different variations in views, but many of them thought that heresy and blasphemy should be publicly prohibited, punished, because you need to preserve, and this is for the honor of God and for the preservation of people in society. You want to protect citizens from bad teaching. Um, the well-being of society demands it, some thought. Um, so that's one reason to give some thought to this. Is this really something we should believe in, something that we should affirm? A second reason, well, more close, closer to home, is that... Uh, I think we are in an important, at least potentially, transition time in the United States with regard to thinking about religious liberty. And I'm sure some of you that rings true. Uh, I, I'm no prophet, so I, I don't know how things are going to go. I don't have a, a definite prediction of things. But I do think that there are some issues coming before us, issues coming before courts, issues being debated by law professors, uh, that are going to that are some new uh, new things uh, present uh, new issues and new issues in ways that 
um, may make life more uncomfortable for us as conservative Christians than they've been uh, in the past. Uh, there's not one issue that is driving this, but I think it, it's very possible that the gay marriage issue may be one that kind of is the stimulus for bringing some of these things out uh, into the open. I'm sure some of you have heard some of the stories that have uh, been publicized recently. There, there have been some stories about um, uh, florists and photographers who have been uh, their services have been sought to uh, uh, for gay weddings, and uh, they've been sued. When the, the, these are uh, Christian folks who didn't want to uh, be be a part of that, and were sued uh, on discrimination grounds, and uh, that raises some. I mean, seems to have the potential to open up all sorts of uh, potential. Uh, legal action uh, that uh, could make things very hard for those who are uh, opposed to, uh, who disagree with uh, the way public opinion has been shifting on that on that issue. Um, it's not legal uh, if you you know if you run a you, you run a business. It's not legal to discriminate against handicapped people. Uh, it's not legal to discriminate against people on racial grounds. Um, uh, are these sorts of laws now, how are they going to apply on issues of, say, gay marriage? Um, and it's not just how it might affect the business that you run, if you're a florist or a photographer. Um, there are Christian chaplains in the military who are very concerned about how it's going to affect their work. Uh, how is this going to affect churches? Churches' tax-exempt status. Not that we need to be driven by tax exempt. You know, that's a nice gift we've had for a lot of years. But uh, that's a very, uh, these are all uh, uh, pretty serious questions. Maybe if I can put this in just a little bit of perspective before I try to, th- try to think with you theologically about this issue of religious, religious liberty. Um, what's, what I think is really challenging, what, what's, what has always been challenging uh, for American religious liberty has been when you have certain religious groups that seek some kind of an exemption from ordinary social rules. All right, our, we have not really struggled in America with whether or not to allow people to worship as they want. All right, we, we don't have big court cases about whether people can engage in Islamic worship or Buddhist worship or whether people want to stay home on Sunday. Uh, we're, we, don't, you know, we, we don't really have, we don't have big court cases about those sorts of things. What are, some of the, what are some of the big First Amendment religious liberty cases that we've had in recent memory? We've had issue of Amish parents who don't want to send their children to school, at least beyond a certain grade, over against rules, laws that require children to go to school up until their age 16 or whatever. Uh, we had, there's a major Supreme Court case that dealt with uh, American Indians who wanted uh, to smoke peyote as part of their Native American religious worship. Well, that was not legal in, you know, and so uh, there have been court cases regarding Jehovah's Witnesses 
who are against uh, uh, blood transfusions. Or what about when one of their little kids needs a blood transfusion to live? Parents don't want it. Sh- uh, should the state force the child to have a blood transfusion? You, you see, what all those cases have in common is it's not a matter so much about worship per se. It, it, it's about, in a sense, seeking conscientious objection to basically standard social rules. Most people in America have, you know, the idea of you need to send your child to school of some sort until at least age 16 or something. We all agree about that. You know, um, rules about, you know, narcotics, those are kind of under, you know, debate. But, you know, we're kind of used to rules against, you know, you just don't smoke certain things. Um, Blood transfusions. Uh, who of us is going to, you know, of course you, you get a blood transfusion if you need it to survive after a car accident, whatever. Um, but I, 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 you see Jehovah's Witnesses, American Indians, uh, Amish, they're all small minorities. We Christians have sort of, we've been part of kind of the moral main line for the whole history of the United States. Up now we're coming to a time where we don't feel like we're actually part of the moral mainline anymore. We have the sense that things have, have taken a pretty serious shift over the past years. Well, we, I think, may find ourselves increasingly in the position of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Native Americans, the Amish, where what happens, okay, if, if as seems at least very, very plausible, very, you know, at least... Uh, uh, perhaps likely, that gay marriage becomes a kind of an accepted standard thing in most of American culture, in American law. Um, um, We may find ourselves, like the Amish, trying to claim a religious exemption about regard to educating our our children. We find ourselves, we're not fighting about, in a sense, our worship per se, you know, do we have a right to have a, hear a sermon on Sunday? But what about these, an exemption from what has become sort of a standard, uh, a standard cultural practice, an accepted legal rule? So, uh, with that background, and I, I don't mean to say it to, you know, try to alarm you. I think probably a lot of you are already, you know, this is not, this is not brand new uh, news to you. What about religious? What actually should we think about religious liberty? Uh, is there are there good theological reasons for affirming religious liberty, a right to religious liberty, and what exactly would such a right look like? I want, you to, I want to begin by considering uh, a recent defense of a right to religious liberty by a fairly well-known Roman Catholic political philosopher. Uh, I'm sure some of you know the name of Robert George. He's a, a professor of political science at Princeton University. Not where you would expect to find a conservative Roman Catholic teaching, but uh, he's, he's done a lot of, he's been sort of a public intellectual. He's done a lot of writing and defending uh, conservative positions on abortion and marriage and bioethics uh, issues. Now, Robert George, had, in an article published a year or two ago, uh, he makes a case for religious liberty, religious freedom. Uh, first, he does. He, he offers sort of a, in a good Catholic fashion. He offers a, a case from practical reason for it. But then he says, now he's going to kind of put on his Roman Catholic hat, and he makes a, th- a sort of a theological argument for religious liberty, and he appeals to the idea that uh, 
I, I can actually read you some of the things he wrote here. Uh, there is there is much that is good and worthy in non-Christian religions. And religion generally enriches, ennobles, and fulfills the human person in the spiritual dimension of his being. He goes on to say that this leads to a rational affirmation of the value of religion as embodied and made available to people in and through many traditions of faith. And then uh, he states later that the right to religious freedom permits people of many faiths to engage in the sincere religious quest and live lives of authenticity, reflecting their best judgments as to the truth of spiritual matters. What is he basically saying here? He's basically saying there's a right to religious liberty because we all have this right to engage in this spiritual quest, the spiritual journey. Uh, this is part of our human dignity is to engage in this, sort of this spiritual, it has a spiritual longing and to try to search for spiritual truth. And there is this, there's all this good and worthy in non-Christian religion. So in a sense, no matter what religion you end up professing, uh, this blesses society. There's this good of religion uh, that, uh, that sense, uh, is, is, is for the common good. Now, what Robert George says is actually very consistent with Vatican II, the, the Second Vatican Council, which met in the 1960s. The Roman Catholic Church was actually very late to the religious liberty game. Um, Rome, up until Vatican II, uh, really did not approve of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and the idea of religious liberty American style. But once it got into the game at Vatican II, uh, it said things very similar to what George said. That basically, we have all the right to religious liberty because we have this right to spiritual, a spiritual quest. All right, and religion as such is good for human society. So I ask you, is that, does that offer a good sound theological basis for affirming a right to religious liberty? Is that the way we ought to think about it? Well, I'd suggest no. Uh, and maybe to uh, just to bring scripture in for a moment, uh, let me read Act, uh, Sorry, Romans. Uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 23. Okay, Romans 1, 18 through uh, 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, uh, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Well, when we ask about a do we have a right to religious liberty? We're basically asking, is there something about who we are by nature that gives us some right to worship as we will? And Romans 1 seems to say, there is no right that any person has to worship however they will. In fact, there's an obligation 
to worship the one true God the way he wills to be worshipped. It's not that we have a natural right to worship the way we want. It's that we have a natural obligation to worship the one true God. That's why I think it's the idea that... Uh, Actually, Robert George is, I mean, he's defending a natural law right to religious liberty. It seems to me that there's actually a natural law obligation to worship one way and to worship one God. And George's idea that there's some noble spiritual quest that the human race is engaged in, Romans 1 seems to portray that, in fact, as one large rebellious quest against God. All right? And... Um, at a most basic level, I mean, not to say that God can't use, not to say God can't use other religions for some good purposes, because I, I think he can. Um, but the basic declaration here is that um, other religions are false religions, and they lead astray. And in some ways, they are God giving us, giving us over to our sins. So it seems to me that this is, this Roman Catholic line of argument that Robert George has set out is not a solid biblical way to proceed here. Is there, but I want to keep pressing the question, uh, is there some other way in which we can talk about some kind of right to religious liberty um, that as we face the uncertain future of religious liberty in America that may solidify us in, 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 in thinking in a healthy way about this subject? Well, I want to say yes. I think there is a way to speak, a valid way for us to speak about a right to religious liberty. And um, this will not surprise you after sitting uh, through my first three lectures, my, my three lectures uh, today. Uh, I think the covenant with Noah can help. Uh, there's probably no one in the world who thinks that the covenant with Noah can answer more questions than me, right? <laughs> um, now, let, let, let me offer a, a, a summary. If it doesn't make sense to you, that's, that's, I think that's fine. Then I'll, I'll explain it. But I think Romans 1 suggests we have no ultimate right to religious liberty before God. I can't, I can't claim a right to worship the way I want before God. I have an obligation to worship as he wants me to. But I do think that we all have a penultimate right to religious liberty before our fellow human beings. All right. Now, let me try to unpack that. It is interesting, even in Romans 1, one of the chief sins of the human race that's listed in Romans 1, remember in Romans 1, in those verses after I read, there's like this long list of all of these sins that human beings have fallen into. Some of those sins are sins of failure to treat our fellow human beings properly, like murder, but not, that's not it. All right? Part of the sinfulness of the human race is not treating our fellow human beings with the kind of dignity and honor that we deserve. Um, so that's an interesting question now to, as we go back to Genesis. Uh, if you think, even to the initial creation account, God made us as his image bearers. God made human beings with an inherent dignity, uh, with a high calling in this world. And despite the fall into sin, one of the things we see in the covenant with Noah is that God continues to sustain human beings as his image bearers. 
I quoted several times uh, earlier today, Genesis 9, 6, he who sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. Uh, that continues to be a reality even after the fall. Uh, we, we all continue, believers and unbelievers alike, continue to be made in God's image. And that means that there is, uh, there's still a human dignity, there's still an obligation that we have to treat each other in a certain way. Now, what does this have to do with the question of religious liberty? Uh, perhaps religious liberty, honoring others' liberty, freedom of religion, perhaps that's part of the dignity that we accord to one another. Well, as I ex- tried to explain this morning in that, at the end of the first lecture, is that this covenant with Noah that God makes with the entire human race and with all of creation, uh, it, it, is, it is meant to... Uh, it is meant to create a certain space for all human beings to live together. Uh, It doesn't set apart one part of the human race from the others. It doesn't distinguish us by our religious profession. But it ordains that all people, all the descendants of Noah, uh, are, uh, are given certain responsibilities and certain blessings Uh, in the life of human society. Remember, Genesis 9, verse 1, uh, this covenant with Noah is a blessing from God. God blessed Noah and his family and through them the, the human race. God blesses all human beings when he preserves us in human society and when he gives us the various blessings, this com- the common blessings of his hand. Now, If God blesses the whole human race, if God gives all of us together the privileges of living in human society, of being fruitful and multiplying, of eating, of participating in the, in, in, in the enforcement of justice, then I would, I, I ask, is there, is there any authority that any of us have to exclude someone else from these blessings of human society? on the basis of their religious profession. And I want to make the argument, no, I don't think any of us have the authority to exclude others from the blessing of human society because of our religious profession. Why? To kind of summarize this first point, because God himself gave to the whole human race the blessing of participating in human society. And if God gave that to the whole human race without disqualifying certain people because of religious profession, then we don't have the authority to exclude other people from the benefits of human society, from the participation in human society based on their religious profession, their religious doctrine, their religious worship. Now that's an initial point. I hope that that logic made some sense. You may ask a further question. You might say, okay, Van Drunen, uh, I can see on the basis of the Noahic Covenant that we shouldn't, we don't have, no one has any authority to be excluding people because they're Muslim, because they're Buddhist, because they're atheist from human society, because God has ordained that all people uh, are to enjoy the blessing of human society. 
but maybe we can still, maybe it's still valid to prohibit certain kinds of worship or certain kinds of teaching. Right? It's one thing to say, okay, we're not going to exclude you because you're a Hindu, uh, but maybe it'd be good if we didn't allow you to teach Hindu doctrine or to engage in Hindu worship. You want to profess yourself as a Hindu, fine, but uh, maybe it's still okay to prohibit certain acts of worship or teaching. Let me suggest to you that I think the covenant with Noah doesn't allow that perspective either. And here's why. This may be a little harder case to make, but um, I want to go back to Genesis 9, verse 6. Covenant with Noah is great. You know, every verse there, you kind of keep peeling away implications of it. Um, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Um, one of the remarkable things about this covenant is that God delegates to human beings the administration of justice. In Genesis 9.5, the verse right before that, God says, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And then he immediately says, he who sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. God delegates to the human race the enforcement of justice against violent human beings. I mean, God could do it himself. God is perfectly capable of sending lightning down from heaven and striking the murderer. But that's not how he does it. God commissions in his, imi- his image bearers to take the responsibility to enforce justice. If you remember back in Genesis 1, to be made in the image of God meant to be given dominion, to be given rule in this world. One way that we are to exercise that rule in this world as image bearers of God is to, to do justice. But notice the kind of justice that it is that God ordains. He who sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. He, ordain, he, he authorizes the administration of justice for intrahuman wrongs. He authorizes us to do justice against those who harm other fellow human beings. What is an act of false worship? It's not exactly a wrong against a fellow human being. It's really a wrong against God. What God authorizes here is that when someone harms another human being, there needs to be a proportionate penalty. That's the kind of the idea, blood for blood, or you know, in the Mosaic Law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What that gets at, it doesn't say we need to be literally um, plucking out each other's eyes. Uh, what, what it's saying is, the punishment needs to match the crime. That's, that's the larger principle. Well, I'd suggest, and I, I think this is an argument that deserves more time than I can give it right here, but that our basic authority as justice-seeking human beings is not to try to remedy every wrong against God, but to be wronging harms against fellow human beings. And that's why I would, well, at least that's part of the reason why I would make an argument 
that no, there's no human authority, there is no governmental authority uh, to try to prohibit or punish false religious worship or uh, the holding of false religious doctrines. Those are wrongs against God. God is going to deal with those wrongs on the last day. But we don't have the authority uh, now, here and now, uh, to be bringing punishment against fellow human beings for this. Let me raise, as I said, I'm kind of reflecting out loud here, and I I hope you you take it in that spirit. I I think what I've just said from from this, kind of just trying to derive some implications from this covenant, uh, is I think it's confirmed when we look at how God brings occasional judgment against certain peoples or nations throughout the Old Testament. And what I'm talking about is if you read, you start reading in Genesis 9 forward, Genesis 9 says God is not going to destroy the whole world again with a flood. But he didn't say he's never going to bring any judgment upon the world again. We know there's going to be a judgment by fire of, of the whole world on the last day. But we find through the Old Testament, you find these occasional local judgments. The first one you see is, well, you see Babel. You see Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are just a few chapters later in Genesis. You go into the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. A lot of these Old Testament prophets have sections in which they bring judgments against foreign nations, not only against Israel and Judah, but against foreign nations. It's very interesting to consider those. Uh, I, I have a whole chapter in my next book on this, uh, on this phenomenon of, of these, these, uh, these judgments against these foreign nations. One thing that's really interesting, one thing that you may not have ever thought of, um, is that God never brings these, judge, these judgments against foreign nations because of idolatry. He never condemns these foreign nations when he judges them for false worship, for false doctrine, for religious idolatry. Which is fascinating because when you're reading the judgments that come against Israel and Judah, it's constantly for idolatry. They're constantly for breaking, you know, breaking the first and second commandment. What's the point I'm getting at here? Well, it seems to me that when God establishes this covenant with Noah, this government of the whole world, uh, his main purpose in this covenant is not to purify religious worship and doctrine. That's just not the point of this covenant. It is to sustain the world, to sustain human society in some kind of basic way. And so what are these foreign nations condemned for when God brings these uh, sort of these temporal local judgments against them? Injustice, trampling on the poor, ripping open pregnant women, uh, showing no mercy in warfare uh, for overweening pride. Uh, these are the things that these foreign nations are condemned for, in a sense, failing to do justice in some basic way. Um, I think that supports my point because uh, God doesn't seem it's, God doesn't seem to bring judgment against peoples, the peoples of this world here and now, for their false religious worship. He will on the last day, but doesn't seem to do so in, in the midst of history. Uh, and that may be further reason to think that perhaps we, as human beings, we as civil governments, we as justice systems ought not to be doing that either. 
Okay, I want to try to bring this to some conclusion here, and I'd be happy to hear some reaction. Maybe the reaction is that didn't make any sense at all. I'm, I'm completely open to hearing that at this point. So it seems to me that we can, just from what I've said, and again, there are a lot more considerations to bring forward if we had more time to do that. But I think at least we could say that there is that we as human beings can claim some rights to religious liberty. Not before God. Not as though I can go before God on the last day and say, I had a right to construct that idol. I had a right to teach that heresy. Uh, no. But I think we do can claim some rights before our fellow human beings. To say to our fellow human beings, you have no authority to exclude me from human society because I'm a Christian or because I'm a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist. And I also think, secondly, as I argued, that we have rights before our fellow human beings to say, you have no authority to prohibit me from worshiping God in this way, from confessing this religious doctrine. I think we can at least say that. But it is interesting if we're, again, trying to think in terms of this covenant with Noah in Genesis 9. You can't say that there is an unlimited right to religious liberty. Uh, there can't claim any religious right before our fellow human beings to do violence to one another. Right? I mean, if we're going to take the term seriously of this covenant... Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. You claim a right to religious liberty to, oh, I don't know, offer a child sacrifice? No. Um, there's, we're not going to let you claim that religious right. You want to claim a religious right to terrorize a mall in Kenya? No, we're not going to let you claim that religious right. You shed the blood of man? By man will your blood be shed if we can, you know, if we can do something about it. Now, so in other words, it seems to me that what I'm getting at here is that the only real religious rights that you can claim are peaceful ones. Uh, uh, I think we should have max, we should allow maximal religious liberty for peaceful practices. Again, that doesn't mean we approve, doesn't mean we support, but I think that we as we would like others uh, to give us maximal liberty to worship as we will and to profess the doctrine that we will. So uh, as long as we are peaceful and we ought to be peaceful, uh, then we ought to uh, accord that reciprocal uh, right to others. Now, just to maybe bring us back uh, to where I started, uh, even if you follow all that and you agree with all that, there are still some really big questions that are before us, some really big, some controversial questions that are before us. Remember that, as I said at the, you know, toward the beginning, is that what seem to be really controversial questions of religious liberty in the United States uh, invo involve religious minorities who want, for conscientious reasons, to want exceptions to ordinary accepted cultural legal practices, cultural practices, legal rules, like 
the Amish with their children's education, the Jehovah's Witnesses with blood transfusions, um, the American Indians smoking peyote. Uh, with this question of gay marriage, um, well, yeah, I, 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 I raise these questions as rights to gay marriage or rights of um, rights not to be discriminated against are extended uh, to homosexual people or homosexual couples. Uh, how are we going to uh, how are we going to make a claim? Uh, are we going to have to make a claim to be accepted on religious grounds from certain practices that become accepted? I think that may be uh, that may be the case. Already with the um, the abortion issue, we're seeing some increasing pressure on people in medical fields. You know what about the doctor who? does not want to perform an abortion. The pharmacist who does not want to, to, you know, to distribute the morning after pill. I mean, there are a lot of these kinds of questions that are, that are um, about. Uh, let me close with this. Is, this may seem to be getting a little too political, which may be uh, out of the spirit of what I was talking about earlier, but it seems to me that the more responsibilities government takes for itself, the more these questions are going to come to the fore. Uh, the more government gives rights to things like health care. I hate to pick on an issue that is obviously pretty ripe right now. Um, the more the government says that we have rights to health care, the harder it's going to be for doctors to get exceptions about performing abortions or pharmacists to be distributing certain kinds of drugs. Uh, the more involvement government has in education, the harder it is for people to claim exemptions for, I don't want my children to be taught that about this issue uh, in, in school. Um, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave this on an open-ended note. We're, we're, we're gonna have to be thinking seriously about um, religious liberty about what it means uh, and we can't think that it's going to be independent from these larger political trends and uh, I think uh, I'm not telling you how to vote I'm not telling you exactly what your political theory ought to be but I do think that uh, we need to think long and hard about expanding governmental authority and power because it's just going to, I think it's going to make these issues all the more hard for us. Uh, I don't mind, no. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your love and mercy to us in Christ. Uh, we thank you that even in the midst of this world in which you placed us, in which we have so many good things, you have bestowed so many blessings upon us so much peace and prosperity uh, that we enjoy living here. Uh, yet we know that this is also a world uh, uh, that is very sinful. We know that there, as you said, there are terrible times, uh, terrible things will be done in the last days, and that uh, we know that 
you call us to undergo trials and temptations of various sorts. We pray that you would give us, as you have instructed us through James, that you would give us joy as we suffer trials of many kinds. We ask, Father, that even in the midst of uh, concerns that we have about our own day, our own times, that you would give us gratitude for the good things you continue to give us. You would give us joy that we have opportunities to live in this world and interact with others and to, to grow uh, as Christians, even in the midst of our sufferings. Uh, we do pray, Father, for the peace and prosperity of our own place, just as you commanded the exiles in Babylon to pray for Babylon. So we pray for our own place, our own cities, our own states, our own country. Pray that you would bless uh, these places with a measure of justice and that you would give our leaders a measure of wisdom and discretion and understanding, that you would turn away uh, the excesses of evil and that you would look after your people. Father, we know that uh, you send your gospel forth in all sorts of cultural circumstances, and so we do pray that we might strive to be faithful uh, in the ministry of the Word of God and pray that we would be faithful and loving whatever neighbors you place before us and pray that you would give us a humility mixed with courage as we go forth in this world to seek to live godly lives. Thank you for this time we've had together today. Please give us uh, a fruitful and restful uh, 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 rest of this day and we pray that you prepare our hearts and our minds for the worship of you tomorrow. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.